take your scriptures and return to Revelation chapter 21. Once again, the passage that we read in your hearing here just a few moments ago. For all those who participated in the music this morning, from the prelude right on down to that wonderful piece that uh, the young people sang for us uh, just now, and I include Brad Wiggs and Karen Frost among the young people. Thank you. That was a blessing. It really was a, a tremendous encouragement to behold our God. Many of you may have picked up on this, but the choir piece they sang this morning was um, Pow the Knee, written by Ron Hamilton. Ron Hamilton went to be with the Lord this week, and I uh, found myself wondering what Bow the Knee sounds like in heaven. I noticed as the slides went by there and we got to the last slide, that was written in 2003. Flash forward in your mind to ask this question. This is 2023. What if 20 years from now you are in heaven? What do you want to be remembered by? What is it that you would like to convey to the next generation? Certainly what Ron has done as a supremely talented individual will stay with us for years. Is if you take your red hymn book and start just to read, look through the Majesty Hymnal and you'll see his hymns are sprinkled all through there along with his father-in-law, Frank Garlock, who also went to be with the Lord this week. So when you and I think about heaven, when we think about what it is like and what it will be like. Revelation chapter 21 is probably the very best passage in scripture for you and me to turn to. We read this chapter a few moments ago. Let's return and look at verses 21 and 22. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl and the city, the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, I praise you for the opportunity to use these precious words that you've given us this morning. To use them to glorify you. This is the very word of God. Jesus said, the words that I give unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And how I praise you for the joy of being able to gather around these words today and to take heart and to take courage in them. Whatever it is that we are facing today, to know that you have written the end of the book. And here we are in the next to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, and we know how it all ends with a new heaven and a new earth and a heavenly city, the holy Jerusalem. Dear Heavenly Father, stir us up, I pray then this morning. Stir us up in our hearts with new courage to face whatever is ahead for us in this earthly life and help us to honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What will heaven be like? And why would you want to go there? What is it about heaven that stirs the imagination and the heart of each and every true believer? What is it about heaven 
just captures our imagination and helps us to think rightly about the Lord. This city, this great city called the Holy City, Jerusalem, has that name Jerusalem, which includes the phrase shalom. Our speaker this last week talked to us about shalom. The idea of shalom conveys the idea of peace, but not merely a cessation of hostility or an absence of hostility, though it's far more than that. The idea of shalom communicates a completeness or a wholeness. You you could say a full-orbed perfection. That would be a right way to think about that word shalom. And here, right in the name Jerusalem, Jeru Shalom, is that wonderful name. So there's an interesting way to think about what we have before us this morning as a, as a full-orbed perfection. I mean, what will it be like? Well, we read earlier in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, that God's going to wipe away all of our tears, and there won't be any more sorrows, and there won't be any more pain. There won't be any more curse, and there won't be any more hearse. You and I can look to this wonderful vision that we have here, which is, by the way, the revelation of Jesus Christ, bear that in mind, about this wonderful heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. By the way, I think it'll be a treat for you tonight. Three of our members who went with us on the Holy Land trip are going to be testifying. I've been watching and hearing about their testimonies, and I'm thinking, I don't even think I'll need to say anything tonight. But they have pictures and videos of their recent trip, and they have much to say about the way the Lord blessed their lives in this Jerusalem that we have here on earth today. Well, if it's that good in this Jerusalem, imagine what it will be like in the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice, if you will, then, in your notes that the manuscript you have before you, a very important sentence. The vision is the revelation of Jesus Christ about the new heaven and the new earth, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. And I'm going to ask you to do something unusual here. Would you read the next sentence aloud with me? It begins with the words, the highest joy. Would you read that aloud with me? Here we go. The highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is that God's people will dwell in his presence forever. What do you think about when you think about heaven? Why would you want to go there? Is it because you know that the highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is that God's people will dwell in his presence forever? Is that why you want to go to heaven? You see there in your notes that we mentioned the appearance of the heavenly Jerusalem. One of the seven angels, and this is kind of interesting, one of the seven angels who delivered God's judgment is one of the very same one who gives us the vision of the heavenly Jerusalem. That angel took the apostle John to a great high mountain. And by the way, when we get into the dimensions of this city, we'll understand better why it had to be a great high mountain. As I said in the reading a few moments ago, you're looking at between 1,380 and 1,400 miles. That's that's one side of the city. It's in a cube shape, and that's the size of those dimensions. So they go up into a great high mountain, 
And John wrote that the city will shine with the glory of God like the shining of the facets of a diamond. You've been in a jeweler store and you've seen those lights shining through the facets. That's what it will be like. Now, notice if you will, as the angel begins there in verse 9, it says, There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had these seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me and said, Come hither, come here. I will show thee, does he say the city? He says, no, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Wow. Think, if you will, then, about this city as the adornment of the bride. You had exactly the same idea back in verse 2 of Revelation chapter 21, that the holy city is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this holy city, Jerusalem, with all the jewels and everything that it describes there in all its uniqueness is that wonderful picture of a marriage. Now, our speaker last week pointed to this, and I mentioned it right at the end of the message. This is a combined Sunday school, I should say. And I noticed that what he emphasized was that the Passover and that feast of the Passover had many interesting parallels with a wedding. And that really became fascinating to me because I was already starting to work through this passage and I thought, wait a minute, our passage this very next week speaks of the holy city as the lamb's wife. So what's what's the connection here? Well, every Jewish person who heard this in Revelation chapter 21, every single one of them knew the formula for a Jewish engagement ceremony. You and I are familiar with it because in John chapter 14, when Jesus was talking to his own disciples and he said, let not your heart be troubled, then he told them why. He said, for I am going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that there you may be also. I know it's it's captured your attention over the years, but it's like, hey, what uh, you know, what what does that look like? I mean, if Jesus Christ, by the way, as a as a master builder, the word that's used for carpenter in Scripture about Jesus Christ includes both the idea of working with stone, but especially uh, working with stone and then wood. In other words, he was a builder, he was a crafter. So when Jesus Christ said, "I go to prepare a place for you." Just imagine what it's like in heaven for him to be building that place. And you say, I've often wondered what that would look like. Revelation 21 is the passage you want to go to. Because Revelation chapter 21 is the place that he has prepared. And he has gone to prepare that place. So that when he comes to take his bride to be with him, we will go to be with him. in the new heaven and the new earth and the heavenly Jerusalem... This is a wonderful depiction of the mansion, of what it will be like. So this is just as exciting as if it were a wedding. And this is the bride coming to her groom. But even the Old Testament saints look forward to this as well. We can see this. And you go to passages like Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, here's what we learn about Abraham. Abraham, who dwelled in various tents, tents that would wear out, He dwelled in various tents in the Holy Land, in the Promised Land. It says that even Abraham 
Look for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10. You see, even the, Old Te- even the Old Testament saints, they saw this. They saw that they were looking for the city, the city you and I sang about this morning. When we think about the glories of heaven, they, they look for, by faith, they look for that city. And by the way, it wasn't just Abraham. No, if you read on in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, here's what it says about all of those in the Old Testament. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, that is, they had not yet received the fulfillment of the promises, just like you and I today have not received the fulfillment of the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. No, we, we, we have not received that yet. They hadn't received the fulfillment of the promises, Jesus Christ is speaking of, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. And what happens to people who are persuaded by these promises and embrace them? What happens to those people? Here's what they do. They confess that they are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That's what happens. When someone truly embraces the promises of God and they embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior, one of the first things they realize is, wait a minute, I, I'm, a, I'm a stranger and a pilgrim on this earth now. I'm, I, I'm, I, I have a different citizenship. I ask you today, have you passed from death unto life? Have you passed through those promises and embraced them and recognized, whoa, that, that makes me a stranger and pilgrim in this earth. Even the Old Testament saints, by faith, they saw that. The appeal today is to recognize that the highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is that God will dwell with his people there forever. We will be in the Lord's presence. That's what they were longing for. You know the old song. I even wondered if we would sing it this morning. Uh, This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Dear friends, that's what the faith is. That's what we're trusting in today. The angel showed John the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending from God out of heaven. Descending. Note that. Descending from God out of heaven. You say, why, why is that important? Do you remember over in Matthew chapter 27 as the crucifixion was being described that when Jesus Christ was crucified, there was a great earthquake and it says that the veil of the temple, this is the veil, the very thick veil, by the way, that was over the Holy of Holies, it says it was torn. It was was torn. And which way was it torn? Was it torn from bottom to top? The scriptures say no. The scriptures say it was torn from top to bottom. There's an illustration there. That is that God broke through to man. It wasn't that man figured out a way to break through to God. No, God broke through to man. And he showed man his way. Man could not and cannot earn his way to God unless God himself provides a way. There is no way. And so in the very same way that that veil of the temple was torn from top down to the bottom, in the very same way, the holy city descends out of heaven for us. Remember, this is the only access. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, 
No man comes unto the Father but by me. No man. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Why? He is the way, the truth, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead for our salvation. His ascension, when he went up into heaven, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, that actually paves the way for you and me to be there. Can you see how he is the trailblazer? He is the one who has done all these things. And so by faith, those Old Testament believers look to the promised Christ. By the very same faith, New Testament believers, we look back and see that Jesus Christ has indeed come. And here's the really good news. He's coming again. You and I, by faith, can hold on to that in the very same way that the Old Testament believers did. This is the joy of what we find before us here. In verses 12 through 13, we see the construction of this heavenly Jerusalem, and we learn more about these 12 gates, 12 great gates that are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. At least one angel stands at each gate. Now, there are some who read verse 12 and say, I think it's actually saying there are 12 angels at each gate. They may be right. We'll just have to wait until we get there, as far as I know, to find out for sure. But the fact is that the gate is guarded, and there, there is the, the beautiful joy of the heavenly angels guarding this, this wonderful holy city. It tells us they have three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. These gates are named for the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's a really good indication that your Old Testament saints will be residents there. Just by the way, try to imagine the conversation just for a moment. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to be in this city, uh, 1,400 miles cubed, square, square and cubed? Can you imagine what it's going to be like to be with the Old Testament saints? I mean, to rub shoulders with Abraham, to talk to David, to talk to Jeremiah, to talk to Baruch, to talk to King Hezekiah, to talk to King Josiah. I mean, just think what it's going to be like to rub shoulders. Can you imagine what those conversations will be like between Old Testament and New Testament believers? But the highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is that God's people will dwell in his presence forever. There's the greatest joy. You can see there that it speaks of, uh, in verse uh, 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's a mixture here of both Old and New Testament. You have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on the gate, you have the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb listed on the foundation, uh, 12 foundations. And so you have a mixture here of both Old and New Testament, a very clear indication, by the way, that you have Old and New Testament saints dwelling together in that wonderful place. He speaks here of the dimensions. He even tells you a little bit about the wall. Look, if you will, in verse 15. In verse 15, he says, And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. The city lies four square. The length is as large as the breadth. Measure the city with a reed, and it's 12,000 furlongs. As I said, that's between 1,380 and 1,400 miles. If you can just imagine the sheer size of that. And it's in the shape of a cube. 
By the way, probably the closest that you and I could get to this right now, if we just thought about what would that look like, would be to go out and, and when there's a full moon, go out into the night sky and just look up at the moon. Here's what we know about the moon. The moon, diameter of the moon, 2,100 miles. It's a sphere. As far as we know in our universe, all of your planets and, and uh, I should say all of your complete planets and all of your complete stars, they're spherical as far as we know. And just looking out in the telescope, I mean, there's all sorts of other arrangements that they are in, but your individual bodies, planets, and stars are spherical. This one's cubic. It tells you something about uh, the laws that the Lord will have into effect then in the new heaven and new earth of physical laws, that is. But when you go out into the night sky and you look at that full moon, I hope that from now on, whenever you go out and you look at that full moon, that one of the first things that will come to your mind is, wow, that's, that's a little indication of what it's going to be like when we see that heavenly city, the holy Jerusalem. He tells you here about the many construction materials that are involved in it in verses 18 through 21. He mentions all these precious gems. Now, I'll tell you about these materials, these precious gems that are mentioned there. Some of those materials, we know exactly what they represent. I mean, in our, in our modern day, we know that's what this gem is. Now, obviously, this is a new heaven, a new earth, and so these are only little indications of what it's going to be like. There's others of those gems we're not exactly sure that we know. We, we think we know, and it's fun to go on some sites with the gemological uh, institutes where they try to figure it out. There's even articles written about this that I consulted this week. But I guess I would point out that the real emphasis here is on the uniqueness of this city. There is, there is nothing like this. It, Everything that you could try to dream up from the Wizard of Oz right on through to whatever uh, science fiction there is of today, there's nothing actually like this. And in its uniqueness, it says something about the uniqueness or glory of God and the uniqueness of the God who dwells with his people. That's really the emphasis here of what's being put forward. You may have heard the story about a, uh, on a very large landmass, very large island, there was a king and his son, the prince, would be the future king. And uh, on that island, they developed a sort of way of doing this. And I would imagine it was a lot of the ladies involved and things like that. They started comparing the dowries that were given for various brides. And before long, the wagging tongues, especially of the older ladies, they started saying, well, here's what I think that bride will be worth. Here, here's what I think that person, that man, that young man and his family would pay to that, that woman's family for the dowry. And a really, really good dowry. I mean, it was just like, you know, one of the very best would be 10 sheep. If 10 sheep were offered for a bride at the dowry, everybody knew, whoa, I mean, that's, that's like the, the top rating. And so 10 sheep, that's, that's pretty amazing. And so everybody was very interested to see where this prince's affections would lie. Where, where would he set his affections? And they began to realize that uh, he had set his affections on a young lady that 
everybody thought was kind of plain. You know, frankly, they, they said, well, she's no, you know, beauty contest winner. She, she, there's not, I mean, it's not like she is, you know, has these amazing talents. And so they started to bet. I bet you he can get her for three sheep. I, I bet you can get her uh, at least five. I mean, after all, he's a prince. It'll be at least five sheep that, that he will, he'll bid for her. And they placed a very low value on her. Then the day that the endowment came, the engagement came, and everybody wanted to know what would this prince offer as a dowry for this young lady? And dear friends, he offered a thousand sheep. A thousand. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. Can you just imagine as that lady walked around the island that people would whisper, there goes, there goes the thousand sheep wife. That's, that's her, that's her. When you think about what is placed in this passage about the bride and about the glory of the gems and the precious stones and the gold and the honor being given to the bride as her dwelling place, try to picture a new bride going into the new mansion that has just been constructed by her husband and going from room to room in wonder about what is before her. If you and I can grasp those illustrations, we can get just a little glimmer of what this will be like in the heavenly Jerusalem. Surely the Lord has honored us. He has given us remarkable, remarkable privileges that are laid out here, again, with no sorrow and no pain and no tears and no curse. What a joy it will be. And when you think about this city, there are at least a couple of illustrations that come to mind, and I've listed them there in your notes for you. The first would be the breastplate of the high priest. This is in Exodus chapter 28, verses 15 through 22. That breastplate contains most, if not all, of the very same gems. And there's an interesting, shadowy picture, if you will. That Old Testament priest in Israel, through whom people made intercession through his efforts, that Old Testament priest, we know from the book of Hebrews, is a shadowy picture of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so when you think about this access to God through our great high priest, just try to picture in your mind that connection between here is this high priest bearing this breastplate with all these gems upon it, that he is, he is representing God, and now people are dwelling inside those gems, if you will. They're, they're dwelling inside that place. There's another illustration. This may come out of the blue for you, but if you think about Ezekiel chapter 28, most people would take Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 as a reference ultimately to Satan. In Ezekiel 28, here's what it says about Lucifer. Here's what it says about him. This is why we know he's not just talking about the king of Tyre in that passage. He says in Ezekiel 28 about Lucifer, 
He had been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was his covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and gold. It, it may be, and this is a perhaps for you, but perhaps what that's describing in Ezekiel chapter 28 was the heavenly garden of Eden, maybe not the earthly garden. Maybe when he came down, he was cast down to the earth. Maybe that's when he came to the botanical garden, we could call it that way. Maybe what it's referring to here is a celestial garden. You say, does the Bible speak of that? Well, think about the fact that the Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a garden. We're going to see this as we move on here through chapter 22 about this wonderful garden, the river of life. Perhaps Satan himself, the one that we now call Satan the adversary, perhaps he enjoyed these very great privileges. But what happened? He was lifted up. He was lifted up in pride. And he wanted to take the place of God. May God grant for every one of us here this morning as we are thinking about these privileges. I mean, we are thinking about the ornamentation of this heavenly city. That we would not be lifted up with pride like the devil himself, but we would be humbled by such amazing privileges given to us and resolve that we will use whatever time we have here for the Lord's glory and for his purposes and not just to serve ourselves. The most amazing part about this text, I think, is found down in verse 22. If you would look down in verse 22, when it says, and I saw no temple therein. Let's pause on that. I saw no temple therein. Why is that significant? Well, because God has always tabernacled with, dwelled with, could I say it this way, templed with his people. And this is supposed to be the city where God is going to dwell with his people. But wait, but wait, there's no temple. Uh, wait a minute. Okay, so look at verse 22 again. And I saw no temple therein. Why not? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Let's pause just for a moment to talk about this matter of God dwelling with men. The tabernacles and the temple. Okay, you remember the tabernacle. Tabernacle in the Old Testament, it was a tent, a movable tent. It would go from place to place. It was placed at the center of the encampment for the children of Israel. It contained, for instance, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Levite priests were the ones who, who basically ran that. And whenever, whenever Moses was coming there, God's glory would descend down upon that tent. And the people knew that, the, that Moses was meeting with the Lord. That was the tabernacle. Then you go forward to the temple. The temple was built by David's son, Solomon, and it was built in such a glorious array. I mean, it was just amazing to see all that was done there. However, that temple was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. It was then rebuilt 70 years later. You can read about this in Haggai and Zechariah, that it was rebuilt uh, 70 years later but it didn't compare with that temple that Solomon built. Why? They didn't have that kind of money. They didn't have that kind of ornamentation. But nevertheless, it was a place that, that God dwelled with his people. He met with his people. That was the gathering place from all over Israel where they would gather to meet with him. 
the temple of Jesus' day, that when you think about that temple, that temple had actually been restored and renovated and, and enlarged, really, by Herod the Great. By the way, why was, why was Herod the Great called Herod the Great? And the main thing was he was a great architect. He was really amazing. Uh, there, this stunned us on this recent trip over to Israel to see that all across the Mediterranean, I mean, you go all the way from Spain, all the way across Italy, and that some of, still to this day, the most prominent archeological finds and buildings are there in the Middle East, there in Israel and, and also in Jordan. Those were built by people like Herod the Great, and he really established those. This is a really interesting note that I'll just pass along to you because when you think about the temple, what else do you think about? I would imagine that many of you would immediately think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because it tells us that your body, my body, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why would it say that? Because God dwells in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory, he, he dwells in us. But there's another note that we commonly miss, and that's over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the church is called the temple. I know I've mentioned this on two or three occasions, but you may have been driving along and seen, oh, something Baptist temple, and said, there, there's no such thing as a Baptist temple. Well, in fact, there is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the church, the congregation, is called the temple. This is a passage that talks about uh, the divisions within the church that the Corinthians had written to Paul and asked him a number of questions. And he, he was talking about these divisions. I mean, the division of being partisan, of being divisive, that's chapters 3 and 4, of allowing immorality to exist in the congregation, that's chapter 5. In chapter 6, he specifically says that believers should not go to court against other believers. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing that creates division there. Then a really terrifying warning, this one really gets me, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, if any man defile the temple of God, and remember, he's talking about the congregation, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are, plural, you are. Folks, that's a really, really good reminder about maintaining unity inside the congregation. Why? Because if any man defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy. That's a very powerful warning. But then when you come to verse 22 in our passage, it's kind of stunning because the amazing ultimate place where God dwells with men is no temple. What? 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 Wait a minute. We've been trained to think in terms of that movable tent of the tabernacle all the way through Solomon, Zerubbabel, Herod the Great renovating it the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in each believer, the congregation being considered a, a temple together. And it says about this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, I saw no temple therein. You say, okay, wait a minute. Maybe what it means is that, that all the believers are still the temple. And the answer is, no, that's not it. Because he goes on to say, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Do you see why it would be insufficient merely to say the Lord God Almighty is the temple? Not without the work of the Lamb. 
It's because he is the Lord God Almighty, God the Father, Lord God Almighty, and the work of his son, the Lamb, who died for the sins of rebels such as we are. That's why it's the two of them together who are mentioned in this passage. In heaven, men dwell in God. When you're reading through Ephesians and the other books of the Bible, and, and it says that we are in Christ. Don't let those words just run by. We are in Christ. One of the ways that this world system has been described is with the Old Testament Greek word cosmos. And, and so the question for all of us, are we in the cosmos or are we in Christ? Well, here the temple is described as the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. God the Father planned for this heavenly fellowship by sending his son to sinful men. His lamb fulfilled his saving plan by dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. And now repentant sinners are in Christ. Just as we will be in the Lord God Almighty and the lamb in the heavenly Jerusalem. What a fellowship. What a joy divine. I mean, think about this. This is communion between God and men. This is the joy of going back to verse 3, what he's speaking of there, when he says, God himself shall be with them and be their God. So as we come to the end of the message, I want to ask you this question. <coughs> What's the most exciting part of heaven to you? What's the most exciting part of heaven to you? You may be here today and say, the reason I want to go to heaven is because the alternative is too terrible. In other words, I don't want to go to hell. Folks, if heaven is merely a substitute for hell for you, you need to go back and look at your spiritual condition. Did you... Trust Christ merely because you didn't want to go to hell and you didn't want to go to the lake of fire and said, well, okay, then I'll, I'll trust Christ. Think about what I'm saying here because the highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is that God will dwell with his people. We will dwell in his presence forever. You say, why is that so significant? Think about it this way. Do you enjoy spending time with him now? Do you long to get your Bible out and just read about him and fellowship with him and you know him and you know he's with you and you're, and you're walking and you're praying and you're thinking about it and you're just reveling in his presence right now? If you're sitting here today and you say, nah, no, then what on earth makes you think you would enjoy heaven? Heaven is first and foremost the place of his presence to be in the Lord God Almighty and to be in the Lamb and the joy of fellowship in his presence for all eternity. That's the real joy of heaven. Anything else is a shallow make-believe. Go back to ask, 
When did you come to know the Lord? And did you come to know the Lord merely because you didn't want to go to hell? I was in fourth grade. I went outside and prayed a prayer with a teacher. And one of the things I didn't want to do is I didn't want to go to hell. And I came out of that episode just as lost as I could be, but pointed back to it for years afterward. How about you? Here's your key test. Do you love to spend time with him? Do you enjoy hearing from him in his word and speaking back to him? The very same things that you are finding there. Are you really thrilled with his presence? Because the highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is that God's people, God will dwell with his people forever. So what will heaven be like? And the first question I asked was followed by the second question. Why would you want to go there? What is it about heaven that stirs the heart and imagination of each and every true believer? The highest joy of the heavenly Jerusalem is God's people will dwell in his presence forever. Is that what you're longing for? To be with him and to be in the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb forever. Can we bow our heads together, please? Dear people, there's a key test there in that passage. And it's a practical reality for this very moment, this very week, this past week. Did you take the opportunity and exercise the privilege to spend time in the presence of the Lord and you loved it and you reveled in it? Or did your Bible remain a closed book and you thought you were too busy to pray? May I say to you today that when we start talking about these great privileges of heaven, we could exercise these even now. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, as in as if the Lord had already come back. That's the privilege that you and I have today. Now there may be someone here today who has never known the Lord the way we've described it this morning. Perhaps this is all new to you. Perhaps we have a guest or a visitor here today and say, I, I don't know, I don't even know what you're talking about. How do I... How do I enter into that kind of precious fellowship with the Lord God Almighty? Friend, you do so by way of the Lamb who died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again the third day, and now ascended into heaven to pave the way for every repentant sinner to join him in heaven. Would you by faith today repent of your sin, of your iniquity? And ask the Lord to save you. Father, I pray for each and every one under the sound of my voice right now, whether listening online or here in the auditorium, that, Lord, you would help every single one of us get ready for heaven. And not merely just think about 
the architecture. But think about the presence of the Lord and dwelling with him. Help us, Lord God Almighty. Help us, mighty Lamb, to dwell in your presence even now and prepare our hearts to dwell with you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.